All right, uh, we're going to dig into John chapter 8 this morning. We're going to start in verse 38, and we're going to go all the way through the end of the chapter, verse 59. And this is a really interesting section of Scripture. It's a section of Scripture, uh, again, Jesus is getting kind of bogged down in an argument with some people that don't think that he should be saying the things that he's saying. There are sometimes that Jesus preaches and ministers, and at the end it says, and many believed in him, and it's a beautiful finish. And then there are some times where Jesus says some things and teaches some things, and at the end they pick up stones to try and kill him. This is one of those. This is one of those ones where Jesus preaches and teaches and discusses and debates and argues, and the end game is actually people believe him to be blasphemous and that he deserves to die. And so I want you to hear as we go through this that it's not the most friendly exchange. Sometimes we like to think of Jesus as, um, I, don't, I don't really know what we think of him as, but you get the flannel graph picture in your mind, you get the, the kindness to all, and Jesus loves puppies, and he's, he's just this kind of guy that would, that would do no, no offensive thing ever. But in this particular context, actually, the things that he's saying you'll hear are quite, quite offensive to the people that are listening. But there's a, there's a good reason for Jesus to be as clear as he's being here. And so what I want you to hear is as we read through this, uh, Jesus is saying this to the people that are there right then. This is one of those ones that Jesus is speaking directly to a specific audience and so we don't take all the things that Jesus is saying and say, ouch. But we have to learn from what he's saying and try and draw from it. Okay, what then do I do with what he said to those people in order to live my life differently? So we're going to talk about all of that stuff. And then there are two major things that Jesus says that we're going to focus the entire rest of our time on. So why don't we go ahead and read through this and we'll work through the context and then two major sentences or statements that Jesus makes. So starting in verse 38, actually the last verse of last week's section. Jesus says, I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Quick time out. Anytime you see Abraham, as we're walking through this, read Israel. So when they talk about Abraham, they are talking about the nation of Israel and the family of Israel that came out of Abraham. So just keep that kind of like in the back of your head. When they say Abraham, they're talking about the nation and family of Israel. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me. A man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? 
If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. The Jews answered him, are we not right in saying you are a Samaritan and have a demon? That's an insult, by the way. Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets, yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died, and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you, but I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. All right. This is a wild section of scripture. So first, let's talk about the context of, uh, of Israel and what they're talking about when they identify Abraham as their father. So Israel was started... Because God went to a man named Abram. This was a long time ago, back in Genesis. God went to a man named Abram and called him to leave his country, which was in modern-day Iraq, and to travel all the way west to get to what is modern-day Israel. He called it Canaan. And there he set him up, and he started to make promises to Abraham that he was going to establish a people, and through that people, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. That's in Genesis 12. It's called the Abrahamic Covenant. So if you're ever trying to be theologically impressive, just talk about the Abrahamic Covenant, and people will be like, wow, you know what you're talking about. The Abrahamic Covenant is the promise that God made with Abraham that in you, Abraham, or through you, Abraham, he actually says it both ways, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Now, part of the problem with Israel over the years is that the interpretation of that covenant went a few different ways. They would take that to mean that, okay, through Israel, through Abraham, who was the father of, Abraham was the father of Isaac, who was the father of Jacob, Jacob's name got changed to Israel. That's where the nation of Israel comes from. So Abraham is Israel's grandpa. And so when they talk about Abraham as our father, they're talking about the source of the nation of Israel, the beginning of the promise of God's people. And so they're saying that's where it all started, and we're in the promise. We are the people of Abraham. We are God's people. All the way through, God has revealed himself to us. He's our God, and we are his people. We are Abraham's children. So here what they're claiming is some national status, some divine chosen people status, and some relative or relational status, that, that from Abraham, they're in the family of Israel, 
And even to that day, they still knew what tribe they were in. The 12 tribes of Israel are are Jacob or Israel's 12 sons. The tribes were named after him, and they would know their tribe. And so it was very familial, this nation of Israel. But Jesus is actually calling them out and saying, well, let's talk about that for a second. If you were really Abraham's children, you would do the works that Abraham did. So so Jesus is actually helping them understand that their behavior or their choices or their life should flow out of their identity, who they say they are. This is actually true for all of us, by the way. This is one of those things that we can glean. Input should beget output, right? So If we are walking by the Spirit, if we're abiding in Christ, if we're filled by the presence of God, the things that should come out of us are blessing. They should be God's presence that comes out of us, God's word that should come out of us. And all throughout the Bible, you'll see, can salt water and fresh water come out of the same spring? It's this idea of, look, if we have God in us, then it's not going to produce something evil out of us. But if something evil is coming out of us, It's coming from a different source. There's a different thing controlling our decisions. So if evil or sin is the output, that's not from God. You are not walking by the Spirit. Paul says it super clearly in Galatians chapter 5. He says, I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. If you walk by the Spirit, you produce a spiritual output. The fruit of the Spirit, love joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control. That's the stuff that oozes out of you when you walk by the Spirit. But when you walk by the flesh, then fleshly stuff comes out of you, and your source is different. It's not God. So Jesus is saying, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works that Abraham did, and To find out more about what Abraham did, you could read Hebrews chapter 11. You could look at uh, Romans chapter 4. There's a lot of talk in the Bible about Abraham's faith, his faithfulness. Abraham believed God, and it it was counted to him as righteousness. So there's, there's a relationship of belief with Abraham, and that's what Jesus is referencing. That if you were like Abraham, you would do the works that Abraham did. It would result in faith. And Jesus is saying, right now you're rejecting me, and therefore I know you don't know God. So this is one more thing for this context, just to kind of add it in. The discernment of if you know God, the way to discern if you know God is do you love Jesus? So there might be a lot of people out there in the world that say they know God, but if they don't love Jesus, they don't know God. That's what Jesus is saying. The only people who truly know God, who truly love God, who are truly known by God, they love Jesus. It's been a really interesting season. The last year and a half, the the church has been squeezed. Not necessarily by the government, not necessarily by politics, not necessarily by COVID, not necessarily by any one thing. The church has been squeezed by the world around us and the, the test of a church that follows God is, does Jesus come out when we are squeezed? Is Jesus the thing that is professed on our lips when the pressure is on, when the fire is lit, when things are difficult? Is Jesus what comes out of us? That is the mark of a church of God. And you look for that. 
You look for that in your community group as pressure mounts, as things, as things start to build up in us. Is Jesus what comes out of us? Is that where we look to as the source of life and hope and peace? Or are we looking somewhere else? And Jesus is identifying with Israel, you were looking somewhere else for salvation. You were looking somewhere else for identity. You were looking somewhere else for hope. And he's talking about their trust in their national identity. So this goes back to one more bit of context. I know I've already said that once. There's just a lot of context in this passage. They felt like because they were Israel, they had a past with God, and their behavior didn't matter. In fact, they would even point to because they were Israel that they were right to kill Jesus, to arrest him, to seek to stop him. And so there's this sense of if we are Israel, then whatever we decide to do is right. And Jesus is saying, that's not the defining line. It's actually what you choose to do with me. What, what we choose to do with Jesus is what defines if we are living rightly or living wrongly. If we believe Jesus and obey him and follow him, we're living the way of God. If we reject Jesus, if we choose not to follow him, if we look to a different place for salvation, we are missing the point. We're going to come back to this a little bit at the very end, but I'm going to move into some of the statements that Jesus makes. If you're curious about the accusations of the devil and the Samaritan and the different things going back, just so you know, Jesus is saying to Israel, your father, the devil, he's saying, look, if you are trying to do these things to me, if you're trying to kill me, that comes from the devil, not from God. So the source of your evil activity is not God. You need to check your source right now. You need to look at what's causing this kind of decision-making. And then they say, are we not wrong in saying that you are a Samaritan and you have a demon? Okay, so just a couple of things that go into that. Number one, Jesus' unknown father. We know it was, you know, Joseph was his uh, adopted dad. But there were question marks around Jesus' birth, his origin. And so there's sort of them calling that into play, but also this idea of a Samaritan. They're basically just insulting him and saying, look, aren't you of questionable origins, and then when they say, and you have a demon, they're calling him crazy. Aren't you crazy? Haven't you lost your mind? Are we wrong in saying that right now you are a societal outcast that's lost his mind? That's the statements that are being made from the Jews towards Jesus. And Jesus goes on to tell them, yes, you are wrong. That's not what's going on. He says, I tell you the truth and you don't believe me. And the reason that you don't hear my words is that you are not of God. Now I want you to fast forward to verse 51. Jesus says to these people, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. And the, the Jews react to this. They say, okay, now we know you're crazy. Now we know you have a demon. Abraham died. The prophets died. And you're saying that if we listen to your word, we'll never see death. Now we know you're crazy. So let's take a minute and just talk about what Jesus said, because this is pretty critical for us to understand. As followers of Jesus, we're supposed to have a different view of death than the rest of the world. 
We don't need to be afraid of death. Now, a lot of us would be afraid of death. And in, a, in human terms, it's pretty natural to be afraid of death because it's the end. It's the end of your heart beating. It's the end of your brain functioning. It's the end of a lot of your relationships here on earth. It just, it, it kind of marks the end of a journey. And so for us, when we don't know what's on the other end of that, our, our experience is limited because we don't see beyond somebody's physical death. And so it just is, it's so defined and complete. And it raises all kinds of anxieties in us to think about my life being over and after that is faith. I don't know what comes after death, so I am afraid of death. But Jesus has a different perspective, and he wants to teach us a different way of thinking about death. So let's take some time, and let's talk about this. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Now, Jesus, when he talks about death, is typically not talking about our physical Heart, brain, lungs, blood vessels, all the pieces of our bodies that do come to an end. Jesus has a completely different view of death than most of us do. He's talking about a way bigger and way more significant reality, and that has to do with, with you beyond your body. Your person. Your soul. Jesus is offering a way to where if we obey him, if we follow his word, if we see him as the source of life, then something fundamental changes in us and we never see or experience death as it was understood. Isolation, separation, condemnation, the end. Jesus has a different perspective. Now, I know we're going to teach through the whole book of John, but I want you to fast forward. There's a story in John chapter 11. Uh, one of Jesus' great friends, a man named Lazarus, is, uh, is sick. And people come to Jesus and they say, hey, come to see Lazarus. He needs healing. He's going to die. And Jesus actually kind of, uh, in a very spiritual way, drags his feet a little bit. He doesn't go right away to go and meet with Lazarus. And Lazarus dies. Lazarus dies and he's buried and Lazarus's sisters say, Jesus, if you had been here, this wouldn't have happened. And there's mourning and grieving and everybody is, is in a, again, New Testament, first century kind of way, freaking out that Lazarus just died. And they know how much Jesus loves Lazarus. And they've seen Jesus do powerful things. And they're, they're asking the question, why didn't you come and heal our Lazarus? We wanted him to be with us longer. These are the things that Jesus says in John chapter 11, verse 25. Jesus is speaking to a woman named Martha. He's, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. So he starts by saying, look, there is a way forward. And whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. So right here we know that Jesus has a different perspective of life and death than most of us have. 
And the Bible will spend quite a bit of time trying to teach us to think differently about death. Maybe just as we're here and thinking, might be worth just processing through what scriptures come to your mind that might deal with death and life. What are some of the things that, that right away just fire off in you that you would think, okay, the Bible wants me to think differently about life and death. And as you think about those, this is a good time to write those down, especially if you have one of those journals or a notepad or even in the margins of your Bible. What passages help you understand a faithful view of life and death? A couple of them come to my mind. One is Galatians 2.20. Paul's writing, he says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. So Paul's view is actually when we give our lives to Christ, we die we are crucified with Jesus. So the death that was supposed to happen that we were all afraid of, that already happened. I don't know if you know this, but this is why you get baptized. It's to mark your death. The whole concept of baptism is to mark your death. And by the way, if you're ever curious about infant baptism versus uh, the full dunk and that kind of thing, here's, here's why the dunk is an important thing. Here's why people would go under the water, because it represents your death. When you go under the water of baptism, it is your burial. You are laid in the ground with Jesus. And we say this all the time, and it's a little bit awkward. There's a reason we don't leave you underwater. The metaphor, <laughs> and also uh, suffocation, drowning. But the picture that's given to us is that you are laid in your grave, and then you are raised up to walk in newness of life. It represents, and so if you're a follower of Jesus and you've never been baptized, this is one of those key symbols that is so important for you to participate in because it marks your death, and then you're raised up to walk in newness of life, to represent, oh yeah, I did die. I don't need to be afraid of death because death already happened. The death that I was supposed to die to sin, I died with Jesus on the cross. So let's go back to Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. The life I live now in the flesh, this thinking brain, this beating heart, these breathing lungs, the life I live now in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So there's a new life that's going on, and this life will never cease to exist, ever. So there's one. There's another one in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10. And by the way, 2 Timothy 1, this is a whole theological a uh, statement that should be read in its completion, but for the sake of time, I'll read verse 10. It says, And now which, uh, which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed as a preacher and apostle and teacher. All right, so our Savior Christ Jesus who abolished death. What does it mean to abolish something? Mumble, mumble, murmur. That's all right. I didn't hear anything. I have bad hearing. All right. To put it to an end, right? When we abolish something, it's put to completion. It's put to an end. So Paul's writing says that Jesus Christ, our Savior, abolished death. So why would you be afraid of something that doesn't exist anymore? According to Jesus, 
if you're in him, death doesn't exist anymore for you. You have, according to Paul, sorry, I switched back to John, life and immortality. Now, immortality, that's just like, I don't know, Thor. We don't really think of immortality in terms of real life and stuff that's going on in our actual world because every human being has a life cycle. We're born, we live, we die, it's over. That's the mentality, and Jesus is trying to teach us a different way of thinking. You're born, you live, you die with Christ, and you are born again, and when you are born again, you'll never die again. Because you already died once with Jesus on the cross. Your death is done. It's over. It's finished. What do you think Jesus meant when he said, it is finished on the cross? What do you think he was referring to? Death is finished. It doesn't have power over you anymore if you are in Christ. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone hears my words, if anyone obeys my word, he will not see death. Your life is eternal forever and ever if you abide in my words. This is an important hallelujah. You guys are awfully quiet. So what do you do with that? Because I know we're still kind of thinking, it's like, okay, I hear that, but cancer, but heart disease, but car crashes, but COVID, but whatever, what, all the things. Death, 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 lots of death. What do I do with that? The first and most important thing is that we change our way of thinking. The renewal of our mind is really important with this one. That you approach life knowing that your death already happened and that you presently possess eternity. You can live a different kind of life that has no fear of death. And so you can give yourself completely to the things of God. You can give yourself completely to the mission of coming into this world and helping people find their way back to God. You can pour yourself out like a drink offering because life is yours. Immortality is yours. You have it forever. So we approach the end of our lives differently. We're not staring down the barrel of, uh, of life. We're looking at this from the perspective of saying, okay, I'm here, and I have an assignment. I've had a chance to pray with, uh, with some amazing, amazing people in their final moments of life on earth. It's one of the most humbling privileges of being in some kind of ministry role is that I get a phone call from people, and they invite me to their house within hours of their physical body ceasing to function. 
I get to sit with them. I get to pray with them. I get to read the last few pages of Narnia to them. I love that one. I get to be with them in the scriptures. We get to read Psalm 23. We get to enjoy the presence of God in the final moments of life on earth. And I got a chance to sit with a man, and I didn't ask his family permission to share the story, so I'll keep it anonymous just for the, for the sake of even, I don't know, I didn't get a chance to ask. But I got a chance to sit with a man who said, here's the thing. If the Lord has another assignment for me on earth, he's going to heal me. I have no question of that in my mind. And if my time here is done, my assignment is done, he's taken me home. This was a guy whose body was riddled of cancer, and he was dying, within hours of dying, ready to see the Lord. That changes how we live. We don't fear getting old. We're not scared of our bodies breaking down because it changes how we view what God is asking of us. Every day that you are here is an assignment from the Lord. And the minute your assignment is done, you're with the Lord. There's no gap. We don't get to see that. We just watch a, a body cease to function. I've, I've been there in those moments where life leaves a human body and it's, it's there without it. I know many of you have been in that same situation and, and it's okay to grieve. Grief is natural. That's not a problem. You are allowed to grieve the loss of a friend or a mom or a sister or a son or a daughter. Grief is normal. But Paul teaches the Thessalonians that we grieve differently. We don't grieve as people who have no hope. We know what happens at the end of that life. And that's what Jesus said about Lazarus. Though he die, yet shall he live. Even if our bodies cease to function, life never stops. So tomorrow, you wake up, and you're trying to think, what do I do differently if Jesus is the resurrection and the life and I have Jesus in me and I will never die? What does my life look like today? Because I know my future. I know my life path. I know where God is taking me. How do I live differently? And here's my encouragement to you. You start your day with your hands open. And you say, okay, Lord, you gave me one more day of assignment. Where do you want me to go? What do you want me to do? What words would you like to come out of my mouth today? What thoughts would you like me to think today? How can I serve you, my king, with this next day of an assignment? changes the way you live. You're here for a purpose. You're here today. Your assignment today exists because specifically God has not released you yet into your eternal life, your eternal state. Every day is God sustaining your physical life because he still has purpose for you here and now. Every single day, you are not alive by accident. 
Not one of us is alive by accident today. Every single one of you has been sustained and held together by Jesus himself because he has purpose for you today. So you open your hands up and say, all right, Lord, what do I do with that? What gifts have you given me? What words have you given me? What relationships have you given me? What resources have you given me that today I can put to work for your kingdom because you have an assignment for me today? You ever have those books that you, you read the title and you're like, oh, I know what's in that book. I barely even need to read it. You guys ever been there before? I've got lots of those books. But there's one by a guy named John Piper. It's called Don't Waste Your Life. Okay, thanks, John. Got it. All right. Don't Waste Your Life. Great book. I think I've read nine pages of it. Sorry, John. It was really, really good nine pages. But you get the gist. Don't waste your life. It's here because God has said, I've got purpose for you today. And tomorrow, if you have it, is because God's saying, I have purpose for you tomorrow. And the next day, and the next day. So if you guys are, are young, if you're uh, Maddie Martinez, and you're just kind of processing the future. All right, sorry, didn't mean to call you out, Maddie. But if you're like in that place, okay, senior, senior year, junior year, senior year. Senior year, like the, the world is my oyster. Is that a weird phrase? The world is my onion, whatever. I want all that it has to offer. Part of your assignment is to process your future through the lens of every single day is an assignment. I want to steward my future with Jesus in mind. How do I bless the next generation, the next place I go, the next work that he has for me to do, the next assignment, the next place? Lord, not only is my day yours, but my future is yours. That's the assignment. And that's how we think about these things when we believe Jesus, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever obeys my words or hears my words and does them will not see death. And so we obey Jesus and we say, okay, what's next, Lord? I'm yours. I'm yours. All right, now fast forward to the next thing that Jesus says that uh, ruffles some feathers. Anytime Jesus says something that ruffles feathers, you kind of want to perk your ears up a little bit and just say, okay, I got to know this. This is in verse 58. Well, let's start in verse 56. Jesus says, your father Abraham, so he's talking about actual Abraham, rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So Jesus actually identifies that Abraham was waiting for the fulfillment of the covenant. He couldn't wait for it. He was longing for the Messiah. That's what Abraham wanted. And then Jesus says, he saw it and was glad. Abraham saw the Messiah and was glad. He was super pumped to see the fulfillment of the promise that God had made. He saw it. And the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50. Our best guess is Jesus was about 33 years old at the time that he was teaching here. You are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Okay, this is a massively loaded statement, and I want to take a couple minutes to walk through it. Jesus had options of what to say in this moment. 
If he wanted to talk about how he pre-existed, how he existed before, like what we hear in John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's Jesus' eternality. What Jesus would then say is, before Abraham was, I was. That would have been the grammar that Jesus would have used if he was trying to communicate that he pre-existed before Abraham. That's different than what he's saying here. What he's saying here is before Abraham was, before that man even came into existence, I am. Now, I am goes all the way back to Exodus chapter 3. When God's introducing himself to Moses and he calls Moses to go down to Pharaoh, go down to Egypt, and to get his people out of Egypt. And Moses says to God, uh, okay, who should I tell them is, is sending me? And God's answer is the word I am. It's where we get the word Yahweh. God's identification of himself, the name that God gives is the name I am, or I am who I am. And so Jesus, when they're asking him this question about Abraham and, and promise and fulfillment, he says, before Abraham was, I am and Jesus is telling them something about the bigness of the moment that they're in. He's telling them that you can't put your faith in Abraham, you can't put your faith in Israel, because that actually is a small part of the fulfillment of God's big promise. The idea of them being just the children of Israel and saying that they are in the kingdom because of that, well, that's just a miss. Because actually bigger than Abraham, bigger than Israel is God himself. This was never about their national identity. It was always about life with God. And this is a, this is a message that I'll just kind of, when we say, what do we do with this? This is what I'm going to encourage you with. If your participation in the church, as you've grown up in this, maybe you've been doing this for a long time, Life just kind of rolls on, and you're here, and there's, there's an assumption of salvation. Jesus is speaking directly to you and saying, look, before the church ever was, I am. Before Anthem Church existed, I am. Before the Catholic Church ever existed, I am. Before the Protestant Reformation ever happened, I am. Before evangelical Christianity ever existed, I am. This is not about you finding life in a church, though we believe that following Jesus is life in the church. Again, we'll teach that until the day we die. But many of us have just sort of floated through life with a religious ideology, thinking that it's sufficient for the kingdom of God. And Jesus is saying, this was never just about getting in a tribe. This was never just about the Sunday school life and making church and tithing and all of that just a part of your rhythm. And it has minimal impact on who you are, but it's just what you do because that's how you were raised. This is Jesus saying to you, that is not the point. This is mostly gone in America, the idea that being an American equals being a Christian. Andrew made a very astute observation about The Simpsons, that 30 years ago in The Simpsons, there was just a, uh, an assumption that everybody in Springfield went to church, and now you kind of fast forward in The Simpsons about 28 years, and it's just not the way anymore. It doesn't communicate the same thing. 
most of America has sort of moved on from the idea that to be an American is to be a Christian. And I'll be really honest with you, I am actually a huge fan of that, of that movement. I say that because it led to a lot of assumptions. It led to a lot of people believing that because of where they were born, they were part of a promise that God had for them. And it just sort of sucked them up into a system of an American ideology being a Christian. And Jesus would say, before America was, I am. This was never about a national identity. It was never about a religious identity. It was about knowing God through Jesus himself. Before Abraham was, I am. So the whole point of this is to remove any assumptions. Now, I will say this. Was it a blessing for them to grow up in Israel, to know the Old Testament, to have the temple, to understand God? They had some of the most incredible access to the story of God in human history. It was an absolute blessing. Is it a blessing for you to grow up in the church? My dad planted a church in Newbury Park three days before I was born. So I grew up in the church Went to Sunday school. I stuffed bulletins for donuts. My dad would bribe us with donuts to stuff the bulletins at church. I went to Awana. I got awards. I went through youth group. I was a student leader in our youth group. I interned at my church. I went to college and studied Bible. And then I came back and I've served the church for 20 years. I am so grateful for my upbringing. It doesn't save me. All of what my parents did is not, it doesn't, it doesn't produce salvation, but I will say this to you, it increases opportunity for me to know Jesus, and I will never stop being thankful for that. To raise your kids in the way of the church doesn't mean they're going to get saved. To raise your kids in Jesus does not translate to automatic salvation. I know there are a lot of parents here that can testify to that. I raised my kids. I showed them the way of Jesus. I introduced them to the scriptures, and they're not walking with Jesus right now. It's not a guarantee. There are no assumptions in the kingdom of God. You just, you don't get to assume anything. And Jesus is telling them not to assume that Abraham gets them the kingdom of God, not to assume that Israel gets them the kingdom of God. Before Abraham was, I am. The storyline is every single person finding and meeting Jesus and through him experiencing saving grace. We have some great privileges. We're part of a country that lets us worship openly, lets us preach the gospel. We could walk out to any street, any time, and proclaim the gospel of Jesus. We can have a, a meeting in a tent to pray over our public schools, and some of the faculty and administration will join us and let us pray over them. This is a, there is a gift to being raised in a place like this, as opposed to nations where those things would be illegal or not available to us in a public setting. There are some blessings to that kind of life that are very different than this kind of life, but this is a blessing. We don't lament being born in America. We show gratitude for it. We don't lament being raised in the church. We show gratitude for it. But none of those things save us. And that's what Jesus is getting at. Do not rest on Israel to save you. That's the message of before Abraham was, I am. Jesus is pointing to the only, 
only source of salvation. And that is him and him alone. And so my encouragement to you guys with what to do with this, and by the way, I just want to say to the kids and maybe parents who disagree with me right now, you guys have done a phenomenal job listening. Tiffany, I don't know what you're doing with these four, but they are just like, their eyes are locked in. You guys are hearing this. I'm so proud of you for the way that you're responding. Well done. Well done. And I know I just preached for 45 minutes about this stuff, but I want you to hear this. There's not one of us in this tent that can assume the kingdom of God. We have to hear the words of Jesus and respond in faith and then let that faith manifest in that being the source of our life. How we live. That's what Jesus is inviting us into. If you're curious about what to do with this, if you're feeling like, I don't know, I've just kind of floated my way through all of this, there's a great opportunity for you to just go to Jesus and say, I don't want to assume anything. I want you. I want you and what you bring into my life. I don't want the assumption of salvation. I want salvation itself, which I confess comes from you and you alone. That is how salvation starts, is belief in Jesus and then we live our lives of faith from that belief. I hope this has been helpful. Honestly, I, I want to preach through the, the scriptures and I want them to stir you and challenge you and shape you. And again, my prayer is that the Spirit of God brought something into your life, planted some kind of seed, stirred some kind of conviction, brought something to you that you can walk away with and say, okay, Lord, let's process this together. Let's walk this out together. That's my prayer for us. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you for the time that you gave us today and 2,000 years ago. That you would teach and challenge and shape us. That you would stir us to a different kind of faith. Lord, we don't want to take anything for granted and we don't want to assume anything at all. We want to hear your words and obey. We want to experience real salvation that produces a real life of real faith and real obedience. And so we look to you, Jesus, and you alone. We trust you, and we need you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.